Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Tony, for reading that. And uh, as I begin, I do need to say a word of thanks to Ferris for stepping in this morning and leading in worship. It was supposed to be Dave to lead this morning, but understandably with the tragedy that has hit their family so close to home, uh, he asked if Ferris could step in for him. So Dave selected all that music, he had it all lined up, and Ferris had to do it. So Ferris, thank you so much. Today we begin a series in 1 Timothy, as we've just read. And uh, I'm looking forward to it because there's a lot in the book of 1 Timothy. There's some really cool passages that I'm really looking forward to teaching and preaching into. And there are also some challenging uh, and interesting passages. For instance, when Paul says he doesn't permit a woman to teach, um, that's going to be an interesting one. When we get up there, I thought of maybe letting Jen preach that one for us and kind of we'll see how that goes. But today we're starting in chapter 1. At verse 1, I mentioned last week that over the spring break, my family had been on Keats Island. Uh, And while we were at Keats Island, I was quite fascinated. I know you've seen this many times over, all over the show. uh, But for for me as a foreigner, it's quite an unusual sight. And I'm talking about how often I would go down with our family. uh, We would go on a hike and we would end up on one of the beaches. uh, Whether hard to come by cove, you know, kind of scratching through pebbles. Or whether on Sandy Beach or Salmon Rock on the other side. But at all of the beaches, without fail... There were tree trunks and logs and stumps all over those beaches. In fact, it became a a bit of a fun joke that I would have with the children, and I would talk about this is a metaphor for our lives, and we have to give these logs back their freedom, and we have to toss them back into the ocean and see which ones we could move. Those logs are deceptively heavy, and so typically we were just throwing driftwood sticks back into the water. But I was amazed at how something that weighs hundreds, if not thousands of kilograms on some of those tree trunks and the size of them can be so easily swept along by a current. I mean, it's fascinating that something so heavy, uh, we would watch as the tide would come in or move out and we would try to push a log, we would try to push a great big thing and you would see this thing that we've struggled with. Uh, You know, we would have to get leverage with other logs to just try and move it an inch And when the water comes in, it would just be washed up like it was styrofoam or something. These huge trunks just sweeping along with the current, washed up on the shores all along the beaches. You know, if I I look at that and I contemplate this idea of just drifting along, as I read through Scripture, I think Paul would add into that how easily our cultures and our world seems to just drift along with whatever current seems to be appealing at the time. Whether it's expedient or whether it's comfortable, whatever is going on, we seem to just drift with the culture and we drift with what's going on. As I read through the letters of Paul and especially into this one, I think Paul would say there are two groups at fault here. And there are two groups that need to respond to the drifting cultures and the drift that happens in life. And Paul would speak to the leaders and to the followers. And as Paul speaks to the followers, that's not a derogatory label. We all understand, we all know that not everyone will lead all of the time. That would lead to chaos. And so in communities and in cultures and in the world around us, there has to be leadership. But leadership needs followers 
who at the same time as they follow hold that leadership accountable. And they hold them accountable to the standard that God has set. And Paul would say at the same time to those who are leading, you don't do this for yourselves. You don't do this to get your own comfort and your own self-obsessed wants and desires met. No, a good leader is one who leads for the best interest of those that they lead. It's a sacrificial servant leader who gives of themselves for the sake of those that they lead. You know, the Apostle Paul, I think, tries to deal with the same struggle of drifting as it relates to the life of the Christian community. And so in this letter, he writes to a young leader of the church, addressing him, guiding him, teaching him. But even as he writes to that young leader, he writes to the congregation around that young leader, addressing them, guiding them. And we have this in First and Second Timothy. Interestingly enough, Titus falls in with First and Second Timothy. These three letters are collectively known as the pastoral epistles. They're written to Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in Crete. Now, when we look at the pastoral epistles, I kind of try and think back of my history and my exposure in church. And if I'm really honest, the only times I've heard sermons from 1 and 2 Timothy or from Titus are sermons at seminary level where students are being prepared for pastoral ministry. Every now and then, they might come out in church, but typically they're at an ordination service or a commissioning service where a new pastor is being commissioned into a new church or a new work in a new congregation. And so we turn to these letters. Now and again, uh, when the subject of elders and deacons comes up, we might turn to them and show the roles and responsibilities to the congregation. But that leads to the question, is that the sum total of the value of these books? Just a few little sermons now and again to fulfill a specific need at a specific time? Don't they offer value to everyday Christians, to the community of God, to saints, believers in Jesus Christ, who go about their daily lives in their daily world? It is my belief along with the pastoral team here at White Rock Baptist Church, that they still offer tremendous value to us, even today. In fact, I might even say, especially today. And as we read through them, we see they are clearly meant to be read to the entire church. They're not just for the leaders. They're for the congregation. They are for the church. They are pastoral letters intended for everyone through all the ages. Terry Muck, in speaking about these three letters, says this, The pastoral letters are aptly named. They are pastoral in the sense that they offer good, sound, practical advice on how to live out our calling as Christians in a world that is not often congenial to the radical demands of the gospel. Live by the law of love, Paul says. Be clear, kind, and optimistic. And then the false teachings will pale in significance next to the eternal truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I love those three words that Mark uses. Clear, kind, and optimistic. And if you're taking notes this morning, you don't need to write those down as my points because I'm not preaching a three-point sermon. But you should still write them down. Because that's what Mark, and that's what this passage of Scripture, and that's what 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy will show us. It is when Christians are clear in their understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
and then who share that message and their lives in a way that shows kindness to the world around them, living in optimism of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the hope we have in what God has done and will do. It's when Christians live in this way that the gospel has impact and God's kingdom will come in our communities around us. But now before I actually dive into the verses and the passage this morning, I'm compelled to ask a few questions as I read through this letter. And it's the kind of questions that I hope you're asking as well. Straight up, the first question when I read 1 Timothy has to be, is this letter relevant to me today? Of course, that might be a flow from the question of, is the words of Scripture relevant? Are the words of Scripture relevant to me? Is the Bible relevant? You know, in, in answering that question, I want to read a poem. Uh, it's a poem well known to most of you, written in 1624, uh, that offers a timeless reminder for the world today. A poem written by John Donne called, No Man is an Island. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as any manner of thy friends or of thine own were, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore never send to know for whom The bell tolls, it tolls for thee. You and I don't exist individually. We might try and live that way. We live in a world that is increasingly individualistic and self-centered and self-obsessed. But we don't live in little islands on our own. We cannot exist without each other. I need you in order to be fully me, and you need me in order to be fully you. And that's not just a philosophical statement that we can debate. That is a simple truth. So, of course, in returning to those questions of is this really relevant? Is this letter relevant to me? I think I can answer it with Paul's words in chapter 3. I won't preach it this morning because we'll get there. But Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15, Although I do hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you with these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Is this letter still relevant today? Is this letter still relevant to me? Of course it is. Because as I read it and as I come to an understanding, I realize it's showing me how I should live in this thing called Christian community. It's showing me how we as White Rock Baptist Church should exist together, corporately, as a body and as a family of brothers and sisters. It becomes incredibly valuable to each one of us. So let's dive in this morning. If you have your Bibles, you are welcome to open or flick if you're on your phone or something like that. I'm going to go through it a little differently to normal. As I said, I'm not preaching a three-point sermon. We're going to go through the passages and kind of unpack some things and have a look at some questions and kind of see what dives out or jumps out 
at us. Verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul, an apostle by the command of God. Paul sets the scene right up front. Any instruction, any command that might come down the road, Paul is saying it is in the context that he has been given authority. Authority is vested in him by God alone. And therefore, his words carry weight and meaning. We know that an apostle was one who had been designated such by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we read in Luke chapter 6 that Jesus spent all night in prayer. And as he comes down from the mountain after spending this night in prayer, he calls his disciples to himself. And from the crowd of disciples, he chooses the 12 and he designates them apostles. And as we continue reading in Luke chapter 6, we soon realize that the crowd of disciples was far bigger than just 12 people. The 12 were part of this body of disciples. And Christ has said, you 12 will be my apostles. You will carry out the kingdom work. You will be what I use to extend the church and extend my kingdom to the, to the world. And so an apostle was not some self-proclaimed person who sort of thought, well, that's a nice title. I think I would like to be an apostle. In fact, this morning I was kind of catching up on what's happening in the world around me. And so I went to that fount of all wisdom known as Facebook, uh, guaranteed straight news right there. Uh, but I had to chuckle at one of my Facebook friends back in South Africa that had a guest preacher at his church this morning. And this guest preacher's title was Apostle So-and-So. And of course, I, I kind of chuckled at that because I'm kind of going, no, no, no. An apostle is one who is designated by Jesus Christ himself, who has seen the Lord and who has been commissioned And of course, we know that Paul had that experience on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, where he was converted and called by God, and he saw the risen Lord, and he was commissioned to be an apostle. And so Paul is sent out. Now, Paul, in that verse, refers to God our Savior, which I think for many of us is almost a little unusual. We're so used to reading God our Father. And referring to God, our Father, as Father. And we talk about Jesus as our Savior. And the reality that Paul is pointing out is it does not diminish the role of Christ at all. But in fact, it reminds us this is the plan of our triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It was their plan from the beginning that there would be salvation. Yes, where is our hope? Well, our hope is in Jesus Christ. And so when White Rock Baptist Church says that our purpose or our intention is to seek to be a loving community of hope in Jesus Christ, we didn't just string those words together because they sound nice. No, that's the biblical mandate. That's the direction. Our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. And this is why Peter could loudly declare in his sermon in Acts chapter 4, in verse 12, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. But Paul continues, To Timothy, my true son, in the faith. 
I need to point out, and I'm sure it's, it's painfully obvious, but just in case you don't know this or you haven't read this yet, Timothy is not Paul's literal son. When Timothy calls him true son, the, that true son means one who is genuine and faithful. It's someone who's not a fake person. This is a genuine individual, one in whom Paul could trust to carry out his requests, one who would meet Paul's needs and, and help him. In fact, as Paul is saying, my true son, what he's saying is Timothy has fidelity. Timothy could be trusted to carry out this instruction that is coming. We know that Paul first met Timothy in Acts chapter 16. Uh, we know Timothy's mother was a believer. Uh, evidently, her faith and her grandmother's faith had been passed on to Timothy. And that comes up a little later in the book as well. And so we'll uh, get into that in a couple of weeks' time. But Paul is talking about this spiritual leadership that is there. And Paul is able to build on this, on what was already there. So Paul says, my true son, and he continues with a very customary greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And after this greeting, Paul gets now into the reason that he is writing to Timothy and to the church. And he begins with an exhortation. We follow up in verse 3. As I urged you, you can go to that slide as well to verse 3. As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. It is no ordinary mission that Timothy is called into. In contrast to the time when Paul had sent him to Thessalonica to strengthen and encourage him in his faith, and we read that in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, apparently here, Timothy is already in Ephesus. And it becomes clear to Paul that conditions are critically unhealthy there. Uh, there there's this false teaching from immoral persons. And so Paul therefore has to urge Timothy to stay there for a specific purpose, to command those false teachers to stop. That command here, by the way, is an emphatic, it is a strong command word. Timothy doesn't need to entertain being politically correct or sensitive to those who might spread false doctrine, uh, sensitive to their feelings. No, not at all. Timothy needs to confront. Timothy is commanded to tell them to stop. Interestingly enough, the same Greek word that is used here for command to stop is the same one that the authorities give the apostles in Acts chapter 4 and 5 when the authorities command them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And remember, along with that command was the threat of punishment if they carried it out. This is how strong Paul urges Timothy, command them to stop. Now, of course, I need to pause here and ask the question, well, command who to stop what? Uh, who must stop teaching? Now, remember, the early church existed in a pluralistic society. 
There were temples to gods all over the place, to different gods everywhere throughout the empire. Is Paul telling Timothy to go down the road to the temple to Diana and tell those priests and priestesses to stop? Not at all. Paul is not telling Timothy to do that. Paul is saying, command those in the household of God. Those who claim faith in Christ, but those who are now teaching a false doctrine, command them to stop. Perhaps we need to dwell here just a a fraction longer. You see, false doctrine in the church isn't merely a nuisance. It is a significant problem because it promotes controversy instead of advancing the kingdom of God. And while it promotes controversy, it weakens and destroys the church, its witness, and its power. This is why it must be dealt with in a serious way. Maybe I can illustrate it like this and we can ponder it like this. If you wanted to train somebody to become familiar with fake money or counterfeit money, If you wanted to train somebody to be able to spot and find counterfeit money, what would be the best way of doing that? Would it be to expose them to all sorts of counterfeit money and all sorts of fake money in the hopes that when some fake money comes across their path, they would be able to spot it? I don't think so. In fact, history has shown some of the best people historically who've been able to pick out fake and counterfeit money are those who spend most of their time handling real, true money. In fact, I read a fascinating story of one guy who was involved in in that department and he would keep notes, money notes, in his pockets. And he would literally walk around and, and he would just be rubbing them in his pockets the whole time. He would just be rubbing real money. And so the moment a fake note or one that was suspected would come past, his fingers would tell immediately because he had spent so much time with true money, so much time with what was real that he could spot the false immediately. I think it is the same for us in the church. You and I need to be so immersed in the words of God, in the words of Scripture God to his people. We need to spend time meditating on, those, on these pages of Scripture. Yes, prayerfully discussing with one another what it means. Spending time in our life groups and Bible studies. Unpacking what is this. And learning from Scripture. So that the moment someone introduces something that is false and not true, we can spot it. And we can call it for what it is immediately. I love how Paul includes in verse 6 and 7 why these doctrines spread so easily. He says, people want to appear like they are smarter than others. They want to be teachers, even though they have no idea what they're talking about. You know, if I didn't know better, I would say Paul had a Facebook account. I'm pretty sure Paul was just tired of going onto Facebook and, you know, seeing people who had no business commenting about certain things, commenting on certain things. Uh, we've all seen this, haven't we? Somebody's posted some sort of symptom, uh, you know, of, there's a problem in their back or shoulder or, or whatever, and they're just hurt and they don't really know what's going on. And, uh, you know, at least one of the comments is going to be from somebody who has no business making medical recommendations, telling them what their problem is. Paul says, these are people who want to seem smart. 
people who want to appear knowledgeable, people who want to teach when they have no business teaching. Paul says, leave the teaching to the teachers, but hold them accountable to what they teach by immersing yourself in the gospel and true doctrine. That way you will spot false doctrine the moment it rears its head. Paul then goes on and and makes an interesting comment about the law as we continue in scriptures from verse 8. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine." That conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now, where do I begin? What do I focus on? There's some interesting things in there. Well, let's start at first. What law is Paul talking about? And how do we use the law properly? And then what's up with that list that Paul gives? of ungodly, sinful, unholy, and irreligious behavior that is contrary to sound doctrine. The law is not the collection of thousands of rules so that the Jews wouldn't break one of the Ten Commandments or one of the other laws. No. When Paul speaks about the law through all of his letters, Paul is generally referring to the Mosaic law. Paul is generally referring to the law of Moses, It would be the the first five books of the Old Testament, otherwise known as the Torah. Yes, it includes the Ten Commandments, and that's right up on the top of the list. But it includes moral laws and social laws, uh, purity laws, how to practice the feasts and the sacrifices, instruction for the priesthood, things like that. Now, before we declare Moses, and by extension God, to be serious killjoys who want to limit everyone's fun by having a bunch of rules and regulations, I need to remind you that that law came after election. What do I mean by that? God called the nation of Israel first. God said, you will be my people and I will be your God and the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. I've chosen you because you're the least out of everyone. There's nothing about you that looks good. You're not better. You're not bigger. You're not stronger. So I've chosen you so that my power will be declared through you. I call you as my own. And only after that process of calling the nation... Does God say, now that you are my people, if you live by following these laws, you will experience freedom and blessing in life, and you will show the world that you are my people. So we don't follow those laws in order to earn merit and favor. No, we have merit and favor because God has already called us, but now we live in a way to show, to show that we are God's children. But of course, we need to use it wisely. And we need to understand why it's been given. Why does Paul say that the law has been given for the unrighteous? Walter Liefeld says it like this. Those who resist doing what is right need to be confronted by a standard that clarifies what they are doing is wrong. 
And as Paul pointed out in Romans chapter 7, verse 9 from the New Living Translation, I felt fine when I did not understand what the law demanded. But when I learned the truth, I realized I had broken the law and was a sinner doomed to die. Now, if Paul, who was already committed to the law, needed to be confronted in that manner, how much more those of us whose sins are listed in scriptures like this? You see, we still need the law to show our sin and unrighteousness. And in that moment, we thank God, the author of our salvation, for giving Christ who has paid that price on our behalf. The very sins that scriptures warn about, the very sins that say have no place in the household of God, we are able to praise God that they are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do we keep on living in sin? No. We go and sin no more. We turn from our sin and we spend time in the word to fully understand what God invites us into and how he shows us how to live. Of course, Paul says how we should use this law. Do we go about and bash people on the head? And we tell them they're sinners headed for hell with no help of redemption? No. Now, of course, we don't downplay sin because sin is still sin and it still separates us from God. But as we come back to the topic of love, we show that God has redeemed us through his incredible love. We don't obey these now to earn merit, but we do them to show merit and to show that we are saved and to show worship to our loving God. This law is given for freedom and blessing. I find it incredible when somebody will say to me that God wants to restrict us with a bunch of rules and a bunch of regulation, we have no freedom and joy when we're forced to obey all these rules and regulations. Really? Do you really believe that and genuinely believe that? How on earth can you say that God's law is restrictive? Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, don't commit adultery. These sound like pretty smart suggestions to me for your own sake and the sake of community. I kind of almost sort of see Forrest Gump over here going, I'm not a smart person. But I know those are smart rules. Those are smart laws for the sake of community. If I'm not going to obey, if I'm not going to commit to keeping those laws, life is not going to go well for me. Has God really given law just to restrict us? Jesus and his brother James both have something to say about using God's word properly. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 6, at the end of Luke 6, about a wise builder and a foolish builder. We soon discover that the foolish builder is the one who's tried to build a house with no foundation. When the storms came, the house crashed to the ground. And we soon discover that the foolish builder is likened to the one who hears the words of God, but doesn't obey them, doesn't put them into practice in their life. The foolish person doesn't incorporate God's word into their lives. James echoes this idea in James 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. So I've spent a long time saying just a couple of things from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. 
But as I conclude and close, you might be saying, well, Brian, that's really nice. That was enlightening. But what does it all mean? What am I supposed to do with this passage? What do I take out as the point? What is the point of this opening passage that sets the scene for the rest of the letter? I think it's right there in verse 5. Paul says in verse 5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of this command, we'll soon discover that this command is to teach and to command others, but the goal of this command and of this letter is love. Love must be the foundation and basis for all that happens in the community of the saints. Even when, and I would say especially when, we are attempting to correct and guide one another. When we see our brother or sister doing what is contrary to sound doctrine and to sound practice, and we know we need to go and confront them, even then, it is done in love. Love is the foundation and basis for all that happens in the community of saints. But of course, Paul says this love must be carried by a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith are developed by studying God's word, coming to an understanding of right doctrine. This doctrine cannot simply be academic head knowledge. Doctrine must influence the way we live in the community of faith and in the community of believers. Perhaps this is why Jesus spoke about this in two occasions. When speaking and teaching his disciples, he said, A new command I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, that you love one another Jesus elsewhere also said the law could be summed up as love God and love neighbor. If you live in this way, the kingdom will be manifest. The presence of God will be visible and tangible. And I can assure you, my friends, my brothers and sisters, I know many of you are looking around every Sunday and you see empty seats around you and you, you're praying for a family member that would join you. You're praying for a neighbor that would be here. You're praying for a colleague that would come to an understanding of this grace and this gospel in Jesus Christ. How do we reach and impact our community? It's by living in love with one another as we study the word of God, and as we put right doctrine into practice in our lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we begin this journey over these next few weeks, in this little letter of Paul to Timothy, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. But far more than simply teach us some interesting academic things, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would move that teaching from our head to our heart and it would influence and impact and change the very way we live in community with each other. That, Lord, we would grow in our understanding 
as we grow and as, as we live out our faith and our calling, that, Lord, the world around us would see it. Father, for those of us who perhaps have fallen into sin, Lord, I pray that you would graciously and gracefully draw us out of that. And if you use brothers and sisters around us to call us to account, to hold us accountable, Lord, I pray you would do so in in an attitude of love, or they would do so in an attitude of love. And as we follow this command of love, we would love you and love others, and we would experience your kingdom come and your will be done. For we ask this, In the name of our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the author and perfecter and finisher of our salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.